Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. No one is exempt from tragedy. When I was writing this message, that was part of my opening statement. Then I found a quote from Philip Yancey that started almost word for word the way I did, and I liked him better than I liked me. So he said this, No one is, is exempt from tragedy or disappointments. God himself was not exempt. Thinking about Christ on the cross. And then he said, Jesus offered no immunity, no way out of the unfairness, but rather a way through it to the other side. Well, we're all going through a major storm right now. In fact, our president has called it a war. Uh, No one's exempt. If you're not ill, then maybe you're unemployed. And if you're not ill or unemployed, you're definitely inconvenienced and isolated. We had an ancient relative named Job, and he experienced a storm like no one else has ever experienced. Within a matter of just a few short hours, he lost his livestock, his crops, his land, all his servants, and all of his children. Ten children. I don't know about you, but I really grieve the suffering of one child, and yet for him to lose 10 children in just a couple brief announcements, that had to be terrible. And then not much later after that, he himself is under attack physically to the point that his own wife encouraged him just to curse God and die, get it over with. What a contrast, because he had been one of the greatest one of the richest men in all the East, and now, very possibly, he's the most desolate person on earth. His testimony, though, is quite interesting. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Wow. What a perspective on his own being. Everything has come from God, and if God elects to take it away from me, then let's praise him. And in all of this, verse 22 of Job chapter 1 says that Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. It all started when... God said to Satan, have you noticed Job? We learn a lot here from that first chapter of Job, especially in theology. We learn a lot about Satan. Where was he? What was he doing? Well, his answer to God, when God said, where have you been? He, obviously, God's questioning him in heaven, in the throne room. And Satan's answer is, I've been all over the earth. I've been going around, checking things out. And then God says to him, do you think about Job? Did you notice him? 
We learn what Satan knows and does not know. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Satan is not. Satan is limited. Yeah, he knew about Job, and he knew a lot about him, but he didn't know everything. One of the things was, if you let me touch him, he'll curse you to his face. That did not happen. Satan doesn't know everything. Well, there were a lot of losses in Job's life. I just mentioned all the material things and family that he lost. The second round of attack comes in Job chapter 2, verses 7 and 9 say this. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife came to him and said, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Interesting his reply. You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, again, the writer mentions that Job did not sin in what he said. His health and his well-being are now under attack. God granted Satan permission, albeit limited permission. You can touch Job, but short of his death, you can't go that far. By the way, you and I have the advantage of looking back at these events, but Job was isolated. He didn't have any of the insight, any of the information that you and I have. He didn't know anything as to what was going on regarding his circumstances. He was alone, he was isolated, in a world that had just totally collapsed all around him. And he was never given the information to explain his storm. He's now lost everything. Everything that meant anything to him. His property, his social standing, his family, even now his own personal health. And all he had left of any value at all was his view of God. And even that was threatened, but he never lost it. It was his trust in God that steered him through this powerful, overwhelming, unexplainable, unimaginable storm. What Job did not know, nor did he ever learn as far as we're aware, is that there was a cosmic conflict happening behind the earthly scenes, and he was the center focal point of it. Lucky him, huh? Poor Job. We know God owns everything, and we know that God is in control of everything. And we also know that Satan has been appointed the God of this world, at least temporarily. And we understand from Scripture that Satan is the prince and the power of the air today. So God rules, yet Satan goes wild, at least on a limited basis. Our lives are part of this bigger story. We don't know a whole lot about it. We can hardly imagine 
the magnitude of what goes on. We're part of a cosmic conflict as well, to a much lesser degree than what Job was. I remember about 30 years ago, there was a very popular Christian book that was called, put out. It was called Piercing the Darkness. It was The premise of it was everyday life in an everyday small college town, but the author brought out all the spiritual warfare that was going on behind the scenes. It was well written, a little bit scary, but um, I really enjoyed reading it. And there were parts of that book that just really struck me as to the other world activities that are going on that we don't see in this everyday life of ours. In the book of Job, it's sort of like God did the same thing that that author did. He pulls back the curtain just a little bit for us to take a peek, to get a glimpse of the drama that's being played out every single day in the heavenlies. The Apostle Paul wrote about that in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. He talks about spiritual warfare, and he tells us that we must be prepared for that. We need to put on the full armor of God, every single piece of it we need to put on, because the battle that we're in is not simply a battle of flesh and blood, but it's a battle of the forces of evil fighting against God. This world is a battleground, and it's a battleground for the enduring conflict between God and Satan. Now, I call that an enduring conflict. Thankfully, it's not an eternal conflict, because we know that God wins in the end. So we're fortunate with that. So God says to Satan, have you considered Job? Have you looked at him, checked out his life, see who he's like? Job apparently is as godly, maybe more godly, than anybody else that we know on the planet Earth at that time. So Satan, Job, pretty good dude, isn't he? Shining example of what I would like to see. Satan's response was terrible. But he says that to God, basically, the reason Job, or anybody else, is good, because you shelter them. They would not trust you if you didn't buy their trust from them. The only reason anyone would ever want anything to do with you, God, Satan would say, is if it benefits their self-interest. What do they get out of it? Warren Wiersbe, in one of his writings, was thinking about that argument, those accusations that Satan gave toward God. And he responds this way. Satan's accusations cut at the very heart of worship and virtue. Is God really worthy to be loved and obeyed? Even if he does not bless us materially or doesn't protect us from pain, can God win the heart of men totally apart from gifts that he gives to them? In other words, Wiersbe says, the very character of God is what is at stake in this struggle. For us, 
how we respond to our situations does reflect on our commitment to God and His glory. Suffering has purpose. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, I'm assuming are verses that you know a little bit, maybe you've heard them. They're verses where God tells us to, to Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, my ways are higher. <clears throat> we just don't know. And we cannot understand everything that there is. Some suffering comes as a result of God's discipline. Some suffering comes as a consequence of our own sin. Next Sunday morning, we're going to talk about that a little bit. have some sources that break it down to about seven different reasons why God brings these things into our lives. So we'll look at that next week. But I did want to mention, for the believer, suffering is never used as a punishment. We are not punished by God by using suffering. The punishment for you and I and what we've done has already been paid for. It was dealt with on the cross by Jesus. I don't have to pay for that again. You don't have to pay for that again when you're totally under the blood of Christ. <clears throat> Job's accusers were wrong. You remember them? His three friends? <clears throat> they were wrong when they took the popular view of culture. 4,000 years ago, people would look at it as though you have problems, therefore you must have sinned. You've got great problems, you must have really sinned. That's what they thought back in their day. Pretty archaic, isn't it? Except for Pastor Clark read for us a little bit from John chapter 9, 2,000 years later, Jesus, with his disciples, walking past someone who was born blind. And the question is, whose fault is that? Who sinned to make this young man born blind? Did his parents do something wrong while he was in the womb? Did he do something wrong? while he was in the womb, to be born blind. Jesus' answer was, neither of those are the case. But that man was born blind because Christ was going to do something that would manifest God and who he is. <clears throat> I'm so glad we don't think that. Well, wait a minute. Yes, we do. How many times have you heard somebody say, wow, he must have really done something wrong for that to happen to him? We have a similar view today. Suffering is not always because of sin, but it is always because we live in a fallen world. When this whole pandemic started, I remember um, tuning in. I enjoy Dr. Rydelic, Michael Rydelic on Saturday mornings on radio, answers out of Moody Bible, answers Bible questions. And I really enjoy him. And he always starts with a commentary. And that day he started by talking about what's the purpose and the point of this pandemic. And, pandemic. and he said, um, is it part of judgment? Well, 
he didn't say this, but I would say that's hard for us to know. I can't say that God is judging you because of something specific, unless God told me, or maybe Pat Robertson told me, but I can't tell if that's what God's intentions are. Is this part of the end times? It's not part of what the scripture describes as the actual day of the Lord end times. It could be paving the way for something like that. We don't know. So Dr. Rydalek's final thing was, well, then who can we blame? And he said, we blame Adam for it. Because we live in a fallen world where sin was introduced. There's sin, there's consequences. And we're feeling the results of that. Some suffering may be undeserved. You didn't do anything wrong. There was nothing that you did that deserves this. It may be undeserved, but it's never without a purpose. Never without something that God can do to bring glory to himself. However, like Job, we may never get a full explanation until someday when we're actually behind the curtain. I would say, no matter what you experience, no matter what I experience, that we do not need to know the answer why. But we do need to know that we need to trust God. As you read through the book of Job, which I wish we could, but that would be a week-long broadcast, Job eventually becomes reduced to silence before his God. He can't defend himself, he can't say anything. And it wasn't until the end that Job realized that there's no answer to this, it's just a mystery. But it's not a mystery that's to be figured out, but it's one that requires full surrender of trust in an all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God. Job gave this testimony, too, when he said about God, but he knows the way that I take. That's true. We see that all through the book of Job and elsewhere, and even in our own lives. And then Job says, when God has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Job was not cocky. He was not conceited. But he knew his place with God. He understood God. He trusted him. He knew that there was nothing seriously wrong, sinfully, in his life. And that's often the case. A lot of times there's nothing that we need to clean our hearts or minds from. God's just shaping us. Again, we'll talk about that next week. This was a test. If it were an actual alert, I'm sure he would, well, yeah, it was an actual alert. Job really did get tested to the extreme. And I find it interesting, that testimony from Job chapter 23, verse 10, but it's not for a few more chapters that um, Job finds out and meets God in an encounter. And he's overwhelmed by God's wisdom and his power and overwhelmed by his grace and his care. And at that point, he repents. Here's what Job says in chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, at the very end of his encounter with God. He says, My ears had heard of you. 
Byron chapter 1 and chapter 2, and I'm going to say, yeah, that's true. Job knew God. He understood him. He was a godly man. He was upright. He was probably one of the most godliest men on the planet Earth at that time. Yeah, Job heard of you, but he says, now my eyes have seen you. This totally changed everything. And I wanted to say, good, Job, now you really feel justified for who you are, for the life you have lived. You have been so good, so godly. That's not what he says. He says, although I was good and godly, upright, I've seen God. And when I've seen him and his holiness, therefore, I despise myself. I don't know what Job thought, but the word despise, in my mind, is really a horrible word. It's like one of the worst things you can say. And Job said, I despise myself. And now, even with all my righteousness, I still repent in dust and ashes because you are so holy. You are so good. You are so great. And I, I just am humbled before you in your presence. God was most concerned with Job's trust. Early on, he proved it, and over time, he improved it. Today, we need to fill ourselves with the worthiness of God, to know him and to be impacted by him. <clears throat> Charles Ryrie, and probably every other commentary, on the book of Job, calls chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, the greatest statement that Job makes. Here's what he says. I know, I'm going to stop there and just say, this is a confident man. This is a man who, at the very beginning, stood strong, stood firm, godly man, He's been torn to pieces, but now he's saying, but I absolutely convincingly know that my Redeemer, my God, my Savior, my Redeemer, I own him. He is mine. I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, after he's rotted in the grave, yet in my flesh I will see God. Just to help us understand that he really meant this, he goes on to say, I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. I love that verse 27. He keeps repeating, I'm going to see God. No, you don't understand. I'm going to see God. Me, I am in the flesh. I'm going to see God for real. It's an amazing testimony that he shares there. God and his word is how we steer through these storms. 
and any other storm that comes into our lives. In God's Word, we find the hope of eternal life in and through our Savior, Jesus. Jesus treasured God's Word. He used it always. A couple of thoughts that he had, John chapter 4, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Then in John chapter 17, he says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave to me to do. <clears throat> Jesus treasured God's word. Jesus came to do God's will, to fulfill what God had said. It was his food. It was his purpose for coming down. And in the garden, when he prayed, he finished the work. He did it. He brought glory to God. So on the cross, he could cry out, it is finished. The victory's been won. <clears throat> you and I need to live by his word. God's word works in our lives when we activate it. We have to activate it by our faith and by our obedience. James said, do not merely listen to the word of God and deceive yourselves but do what it says. Don't just be people who know facts and know information. You can win the sword drill every time in your Sunday school class, but if you don't know Christ, if you don't trust him and you don't obey him, then it's all meaningless. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, how we praise you this day for being the God of wonder, the God of glory, a holy and righteous God who knows the hearts of men. Thank you that even though there are times of storms in our lives, you are with us at all times. Thank you that even though we do not have answers, we always have you. And we can always grow in our trust in you. God, I pray for those listening today that they would know Christ is their Savior and that they would trust and obey him through whatever comes to our lives. And Lord, ultimately, may that bring glory to God on the highest. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.